Given that we have gathered here today to talk about conflicts around the world, it is my distinct pleasure to announce that the University of Chicago has received a transformative gift to create a landmark program to study and help resolve global conflicts. It's a new chapter in Chicago Harris's history. On September 30th, University of Chicago President Robert J. Zimmer announced a $100 million gift from the Thomas L. Pearson and the Pearson Family Members Foundation. This gift will establish the Pearson Institute for the Study and Resolution of Global Conflicts and the Pearson Global Forum at Chicago Harris. They will be the first research institute in the first global forum of their kind, devoted to confronting the causes and consequences of global conflicts through data-driven analysis. On the heels of this landmark announcement, people have been eager to learn more about what kind of work the Pearson Institute will do and how that work can make a difference. So to kick off a brand new season of Radio Harris, our very own Dean Daniel Diermeyer sat down with Professor Ethan Bueno de Mesquita, who is the Deputy Dean for Research and Strategic Initiatives and an expert in quantitative approaches to conflict. On September 30th, we had the announcement of the Pearson Institute for the Study and Resolution of Global Conflicts. Today, it's my pleasure to sit here with uh, Professor Ethan Bueno to Mesquita to talk a little bit in more detail about what the Institute is about, what the plans are, and what the need for the Institute is. Um, when we had the launch, when we had the announcement on Wednesday, we had panels, we had speeches, and a big theme in this discussion was the need for new policy solutions in this era of new types of conflicts. Uh, conflicts that often involve um, sub-state, non-state actors. The headlines are full, of course, about the Taliban, ISIS, and so forth. Give us a sense of kind of, you know, what the specific challenges are in this new era of global conflicts and why new policy solutions are needed. So I think there's really two things. So one is that in the post-9-11 world, we're faced with a set of policy challenges, as you say, involving a different kind of actor. Of course, non-state and sub-state actors have always existed, but they have really come to the fore in terms of our foreign policy concerns. And so the policy community, I think, is struggling to catch up with how to think about how do you do conflict resolution? How do you do successful policy interventions? How do you do development work? Uh, when faced with these kind of violent actors who don't respond necessarily to the same kinds of policies or incentives that state-level actors do. That's raised a set of challenges for the scholarly community. The scholarly community has become interested in, increasingly interested in these kinds of issues as they've become increasingly important in the world and increasingly important to policymakers. And making progress on understanding these kinds of groups and these kinds of conflicts requires a set of tools and a set of skills which is somewhat different than those that were used, say, during the Cold War to understand great power conflict. The Pearson Institute will be dedicated towards quantitative, rigorous, analytical approaches to the study and resolution of global conflicts. Can you give us some more detail about what we mean by that, um, how this is different from kind of previous approaches, and really what the promise of this new approach is? I think this is what's so exciting about the Pearson Institute is as people have become concerned with this kind of conflict, a new generation of scholars have grown up and they're using a set of tools, many of those the tools of economic theory and the tools developed by development economists and others to study other kinds of issues to try and make sense of these kinds of conflicts. And I think 
the Institute's going to be in a position to really uh, accelerate that research and become an organizing principle for that community. And l let me give you a sense of, of what I mean when I say these new approaches to these kinds of issues. So let's take a really classic question in the study of conflict that's very policy relevant, which is suppose you wanted to use various kinds of economic levers to try and uh, mitigate the risk of conflict or reduce an ongoing conflict. So you might want to know if I engage in development activities, if I make people wealthier, is that going to lead to a reduction in conflict? The, the sort of canonical way to study this question, the sort of first obvious thing you'd do if you were to try and study that question, you get a bunch of data about countries that do and don't have conflict and that do and don't have various kinds of economic wealth, and you'd do some simple comparisons. You'd ask, are rich countries or poor countries more or less likely to have conflicts? And of course, if you do that, and you can control for lots of things, but if you do that, what you're going to find is it's in fact true that poor countries have a lot more conflict than rich countries, from which you don't want to conclude that poverty causes conflict, although it's tempting to do so, and much of the policy discourse has in fact reached that conclusion based on that kind of evidence. So why is that not convincing? It's not convincing because there may be all sorts of other things which differentiate poor from rich countries that affect conflict. And you don't want to conclude from the fact that the poor countries have more conflict that it must be the poverty itself that's causing it. This is sort of the standard trope that correlation doesn't imply causation. So what are you going to do then if you want to answer this question? Answering this question is, of course, essential if you want to know whether or not it's a good idea to spend money from a government on some economic development policy to try and reduce um, conflict. So the next thing that clever scholars do is they say, well, I want to try and think about some experiment. I want to, usually we want to think about a natural experiment, something that, that shocks the world in some way, that's not related to a country's conflict, but changes their economy in a way that you could learn about how that shock affected conflict in a way that might be more convincing. And so scholars have said, for example, a thing that characterizes a country's economy is its stock of commodities. Right? So you can learn about, this is something that's just part of the natural endowment of a country, and you can go back in history and find out this country had diamonds, that country had oil, this country has coal. And that's a thing you can know about a country. You can characterize the commodity stock of every country in the world, and then you can look at changes to the world price of that, that stock of commodities. And of course, most countries, for most commodities, don't get to set the price. That's not true for every country. Of course, Saudi Arabia affects the price of oil very directly, but most countries have no effect on the price of the commodity because they're just not big players. And so you can use changes to the world price of a commodity interacted with which countries have that commodity as a source of natural variation in the value of a country's economy that's not subject to, say, reverse causality, that the conflict in the country caused that change in price. And from this, you could learn something about when the value of my economy, at least this part of my economy, changes, what happens to conflict in my country. And if you look at the best studies that do that, what you find is no relationship at all. So it looks like shocks to a country's commodity bundle have no effect on conflict, from which you might be tempted to conclude, ah, I see, I was wrong before, and in fact, the economy doesn't matter for conflict at all. But we don't want to be too hasty here either. So when we talk about these new approaches, we typically talk about the need in these very complex, subtle environments like conflict environments, melding careful theorizing about mechanisms with careful empirical work of the sort I just described. So here's a next step in that research tradition that actually happened. A scholar comes along and says, you know, what might be true is that commodities might not matter at all. Another thing that might be true is that different commodities matter in different ways. So maybe some commodities 
increase conflict when they become more valuable, and other commodities decrease conflict. One way that might happen, in the conflict literature, we often talk about two mechanisms. We talk about a predation mechanism, that rebels fight because they're trying to steal things or fight for control of things that are of value, and then the more valuable those things they become, the more willing they are to fight. We also talk about what we typically call sort of an opportunity cost mechanism. When the economy is better, people are less inclined to fight because their lives are better, and it's harder to mobilize them. So maybe some commodities activate that first. They become more valuable when you get control of them, you're richer, and so it's more tempting to fight. Other commodities, when they become more valuable, there's more jobs, people are less willing to fight. Right? And so that could be then that some commodities are increasing violence when they become more valuable. Some commodities are decreasing violence when they become more valuable. And when we average them across countries, we see zeros not because the economy doesn't matter, but because it matters in two ways that are subtle. And so a very clever study, really one of my favorite studies in this literature, um, tries to get directly at that. And they do that by going it, sort of at a deep level into the Colombian conflict. So the Colombian conflict is a decades-old conflict, one of the longest-running uh, civil conflicts in the world. And what they notice about the Colombian economy that's particularly nice is that it's, a, it's characterized really by three commodities, oil, coffee, and cocaine. I'm going to leave aside cocaine for a minute and just talk about coffee and oil. In the case of oil, oil is a very capital-intensive commodity, but not labor-intensive. This is sort of a canonical kind of commodity. When it becomes more valuable, nothing really happens to wages. And so we don't expect this opportunity cost mechanism to get going. But things do happen to predation. You can steal oil revenues in lots of different ways through direct, uh, in fact, direct drilling into oil pipelines, through extortion rackets, through all sorts of things. And so we think when oil becomes more valuable, that should sort of activate this predation mechanism and increase conflict. The other is coffee, which is very labor intensive. When coffee becomes more valuable, we expect wages to go up and sort of activate this opportunity cost mechanism. And so what these scholars do is they say, we go at a very fine-grained level inside Colombia, and I'm going to say municipality by municipality, how coffee intensive are you, how oil intensive are you? And then they're going to look at changes to the world price of oil, the world price of coffee, and ask when coffee prices are shocked, what happens to violence in coffee-producing places? relative to other places. So they have a control group and they have a shock. And when oil prices are shocked, what happens to violence in oil-producing municipalities versus non-oil-producing municipalities? And what they find is exactly what this theory predicts, that when oil prices are shocked up, violence goes up in oil-producing places relative to non-oil-producing places. When coffee prices are shocked up, violence goes down in coffee-producing places versus non-coffee-producing places. And so here we have evidence that the economy does matter. It ha matters through two mechanisms. If you were to average them across, across all of Colombia, you might think that commodity prices don't matter at all, but it's because different commodities work differently. And here we have a sort of a long history of scholarship that's slowly doing better and better causal inference, being more and more sophisticated about mechanisms, and getting to an answer that's both policy-relevant and much more subtle than anything we could have realized without, without the line of research and the careful theorizing and uh, micro-level empirical work. So one thing from, that strikes me from this particular example is that even though it requires some very sophisticated understanding of causal inference, uh, modeling, theorizing, and so forth, it also requires a, a deep understanding of the history and the kind of local conditions in the country. So very often when we think about international relations, we have this kind of 
two-sided battle. We have on the one hand the people that know a lot about a particular country. On the other hand, we have people that know a lot about you know how to do proper statistical models or mathematical modeling and so forth. So do we see kind of a convergence here? Is that kind of a new generation of scholars that tries to bridge this, this divide? I think two things are true. I think you're absolutely right. One thing we see is these new scholars, some of them are just amazing young people who have the whole package and are doing field work and collecting original data and learning a lot of detailed uh, institutional history of the conflicts they study and also have great technical skills. But I think the other thing that's happening and will become increasingly important over time and why it makes it so important that we have the Pearson Institute to sort of be an organizing principle for this research community is that this is, it's too many skills for any one person to have. And what's really needed is a research team, a research community of people with a set of different skills and shared values who can talk to each other and make progress on these really hard problems through a shared set of skills, right? As opposed to the model of the single scholar solving the problem on their own, you need some people who really understand the conflict and you need some people with relationships with journalists or with government officials or with others who can get access to the data. And you need people with theoretical models and theoretical intuitions who can help you think about what mechanisms you want to look at. And you need people who know a ton of econometrics who can help you think about how to properly uh, get at the causal relationships. And it may be sometimes that a remarkable person can do that all at once, but usually what happens is that over time, a community of people have that set of skills. So. Give us an example of uh, some policy consequences that will come out of this work, maybe from the example that you mentioned or some other examples, that we have a sense of kind of how these insights uh, really shape or inform how we should uh, change particular policies that help us that are intended to reduce violent conflict. So in those Columbia studies, we see two important mechanisms by which the economy relates to conflict. One is predation that the economy becomes more valuable and there's more to steal and violence might go up. And the other is opportunity cost, that the economy becomes more valuable, people have better lives, and they're less inclined to uh, engage in violent behavior. In the Philippines, scholars have taken those two mechanisms and actually done evaluations of policies that attempt to isolate one or the other to see whether we can use our understanding of those mechanisms to design policies to fight violence that are more effective. So here, these two studies, one of them looks at a development project that built infrastructure in poor villages. And in that study, the way they learn about the causal effect of those development projects is it turns out that the Philippine government had sort of a bright line rule that you had to be in the bottom quartile of poor villages to qualify. And so they can do one of these studies that, can, that looks at villages just below that line and just above that line, which are in other ways expected to be very, very similar, but the ones just below the bottom quartile line got the project and the ones just above didn't. And what they see is when you go and build this infrastructure project, the places that got it see a big upsurge in violence. And that may be because the rebels are coming to try and dis they're worried about the development project's effect and they're trying to disrupt it. It may be that you're, when you're doing a development project that involves building infrastructure, you're bringing in things that are in fact lootable and they're going to the village to steal it. These same set of scholars then study another development project in the Philippines. This is a traditional cash, uh, conditional cash transfer project. This is a sort of policy that's been studied um, 
throughout, say, Latin America by lots of development economists. And the idea here is you give direct cash transfers to poor people in exchange for it's conditional on them meeting some criteria, like they send their kids to school for enough, a certain number of days a year or things like this. The difference here is you're not coming in and building a project that can be disrupted. You're not bringing in equipment that can be stolen. You're just giving cash to poor people. In the case of this study, the scholars were actually able to work with an international organization to directly randomize the, the rollout of this program. So some villages got the program and some didn't. And they're able to then compare villages that got it that versus villages that didn't. And because they have random experimental variation, they can learn about causality again. Here you have the opposite effect. So here you have just handing money to poor people doesn't cause this upsurge in violence. We think because there's nothing to disrupt, there's nothing to steal. And indeed, it leads to a reduction in violence, suggesting that you've given money to these poor people and, and sort of um, activated this opportunity cost mechanism. They're less sympathetic to the rebels. They're less willing to mobilize. They're less willing to provide tacit support. So this has very direct policy consequences, right? Because now you're thinking about, I want to go and do a development co project in a conflict zone, and you're going to be tempted to go build a school or build a well or build a, build a road, right? And what we're learning from this study and other studies actually like it in, in, say, West Africa, is that that may be significantly less effective than simply taking the money you would have spent on, spent on that project and going and giving it directly to poor people. Because what you want to do when you do your development project to fight conflict is activate this opportunity cost mechanism while avoiding the, pred the predation mechanism. The second component of what the Pearson Institute will really be about will be about um, educating the next generation of policy leaders on that. Um, give us a little bit of a sense for what, in your view, what is it that these policy leaders really need to be able to understand, what needs to be their capabilities to be effective policy makers in this world of new global conflicts? One of the things I've always admired about certain areas of economics is that they train a cadre of really well-trained students who go into policy roles but are, have the skills and conceptual tools to interact with the research and the academics in a way that allows very rigorous scholarship to inform policy. And I think in foreign policy, many people feel that the more technical side of the scholarship isn't policy relevant because the policy makers don't pay attention to it. And I think that's a failing of the academy to train students who want to go into policy roles but who have the technical skills and the set of interests to interface with this kind of scholarship and who have been shown that it's policy relevant and therefore are motivated to do so. A thing that I'm really excited about with the Pearson Institute is that we'll be able to train a generation of students who have the technical abilities and the conceptual frameworks to think about policies from the perspective of this rigorous analytical approach to the understanding of conflict. And when those students then go into policy roles, those tools will allow them to continue to interface with the academic community, to continue to learn from the research insights. And perhaps just as importantly, that will create a virtuous cycle whereby policymakers are consulting with academics who are providing new information, but also getting access to new data and new questions, and that there will be this helpful cycle between the policymakers and the academics answering the questions that are important to all of us. It's worth noting that will also be one of the great benefits of the Pearson Global Forum, which will accelerate this process by 
bringing together existing policymakers who didn't have the opportunity to go through our educational program and allowing them to interface and interact with academics for the academics to learn what's important to the policymakers, for the policymakers to learn what the academics know, to build the relationships that are essential to both getting the best scholarship into the hands of people who can make important policies and getting the best data and the most important questions into the hands of scholars who are interested in making progress on understanding the answers to those questions. If you want to hear more from Professor Bueno de Mesquita, check out our War Games episode from last season. He talked about how he's using game theory to look at the hard economics at the root of factional violence. In the case of a Chicago street gang, I literally am making a choice. Do I want to buy more guns? Do I want to send my people away from selling drugs and off to try and take another thing, knowing that they might get killed, knowing that they might get arrested, knowing all of these things, which is going to be literally costly to me because I'm going to have to go out and recruit new people. I'm going to have to replace those guns, all of these things. You can find that episode on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Just search for Radio Harris. That's it for today. Our theme music is by A Smile from Timbuktu. Please join us next time for a discussion with Professor Ariel Khalil, who's investigating whether behavioral science can nudge parents to spend more time reading to their kids.